Is Howard joining us? He, Howard is actually going to be an attendee. Nice. So we can watch for his name. Welcome, Susan. We see your name on the list. We'll get started here in just a few minutes. And there is Howard. We we wondered where he would be, and there he is on the list of attendees. <laughs> so welcome to everyone who is joining us. We will just get started in a few minutes. We'll give folks a minute or so to Click the link here at the top of the hour and get settled in before we start. Well, let's go ahead and get started with the housekeeping as folks come in the room. Um, welcome to today's SNEB webinar. Uh, this is our final webinar of 2023. I counted this morning and we've done almost 35 webinars this year. So um, I'm sorry to see the series end, but um, we're already planning things for next year. So my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the executive director of SNEB. And thank you for joining uh, the webinar today, which is organized by an SNEB organizational member, um, the National Mango Board. Uh, so let's do a little bit of housekeeping. I've got the slides for today's presentation. So I will drop those into the chat uh, so you can download the slides and uh, follow along with the presentation. We will take questions at the end of the presentation. So please type those in the uh, question block or comments in the chat block so I can uh, moderate those to our presenters. Uh, when the webinar ends today, there's a short survey and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars. Uh, we are recording today's webinar, so watch for an email that will probably arrive by Friday of this week. Um, the email comes from Zoom. It will include the link to the recording, uh, the handout, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance today. So I am excited to introduce our uh, speakers today. So Lorena Drago with Hispanic Foodways LLC is a speaker, author, consultant, communicator, and specializes in the multicultural aspects of nutrition and diabetes self-management and education. I say, I think Lorena has a slide if we wanna go ahead and move ahead one slide. We were just messing with the slide controls, so hold on a second. <laughs>
Is it going to move? I see oh, it. It's close. Come on, you. There's more than one way to do it. Perfect. <laughs> and then um, Diana Mesa is a media featured expert, consultant, author, and speaker. She also dressed in mango colors for us today. Uh, she offers culturally inclusive counseling for people with diabetes, PCOS, and more in her private practice. So I will turn our presentation over uh, to our panelists. Thank you very much. Um, it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, pleasure for me to be here with all of you um, today, whether it's afternoon or morning. And these are the objectives for today's presentation. Uh, so please take uh, a few seconds to read today's objectives. I want to thank the Mango Board uh, for uh, this presentation, sponsoring this presentation. So here we have uh, the census, uh, and this is the 20, uh, 2020, and the Hispanic or Latino population of any race is approximately, approximately 62 million um, Latinos. That accounts for approximately 19% of the population in the United States. Now, uh, even though it's considered a single ethnic group, Hispanics uh, represent a heterogeneous mixture of ancestries. And Hispanics can self-identify as of any race or a mixture of races as defined by the U.S. Census. Uh, okay, so each group has a, diff a different culture, uh, tradition, uh, music, and of course, a rich gastronomy. Most of us uh, speak Spanish, but there are many indigenous groups in different countries that speak also different languages like Mayan, Quechuan, etc. What I show here is the largest Hispanic subgroups and I present 10 of the largest different subgroups that live in the United States by ancestry. So the largest one, of course, are Mexicans, and they account for over 37 million um, individuals that live in the United States, mostly concentrated in the West part of the country, followed by the US territory of Puerto Rico and I just want to underscore that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. So they are the only group of Hispanics that are U.S. citizens. Then we have Salvadorians, Cubans, um, and Dominicans that are over 2 million. 
and then Peruvians. Uh, so I will also uh, underscore again that each of the groups have very distinct cultures and traditions, and again, gastronomy. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So here we're going to start talking a little bit about what um, we like to say the Hispanic Health Report. So the first one is overweight and obesity. And when we are comparing Hispanics as a whole, uh, most Hispanic American women, 78, almost 79% are overweight or obese compared to non, say 64% of non-Hispanic white women. Uh, the same occurred with uh, high school students, etc. I also want to share with you that when it comes to studies of Hispanics, be, uh, just to show you, to correlate with the previous slides, as you can see, uh, all, almost over 35% of Hispanics are of Mexican heritage. What that has occurred is that most of the, of the studies of Hispanics frequently considered uh, those of Mexican heritage to be representative of all US Hispanics. Uh, that is problematic because the rest of the Hispanics that live in the United States, those other 40% are underrepresented in most of the studies that you and I read. And that causes this problem of not having equal representation in the scientific research. So the other point that I also wanted to, to share with you is when you are counseling Hispanics that have overweight or obesity, there are many factors to, um, to consider. Uh, there is genetic as well as cultural, as well as environmental factors that may account for the numbers that we're seeing here as well as social determinants of health. So the counseling has to emphasize changes that encompass all of those different uh, uh, factors that may cause um, the data that you're seeing here and focus on those issues that can be changed. Uh, including focusing on foods such as making those changes, such as augmenting the nutrient, um, nutritious foods that can be incorporated into the diet and crowdsourcing those foods, such as increasing the fruits and vegetables. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that and increasing those healthier behaviors that can increase, and as I share with my uh, husband, those foods that are more cardioprotective, 
and focusing more on those things and, and lifestyle uh, behaviors. Now, when it comes to diabetes, I also wanted to share that type two diabetes, the prevalence of type two diabetes is higher among Hispanics than non-Hispanics. And when it comes to the different groups, that is also different. So that's why the counseling has to be individualized. So let's take a look here when, when you're looking about type two diabetes, you will see that as a whole, you there is a disparity compared to non-Hispanic whites. But here, and I'm going to um, have you look at Mexicans, they have the highest prevalence of type 2 diabetes. Um, we're talking about 14.4%, followed by Puerto Ricans, and then Cuban, Cubans are uh, lower. Now, unfortunately, Central and South American, there is a lower percentage, but this is really not very accurate because we are comparing um, an entire nine countries, Spanish speaking countries in South America and six Spanish speaking countries in Central America. So here we are grouping 15 countries and this will be as if I were telling you that in Europe, the prevalence of type two diabetes was 8.0. That will not be an accurate assessment of grouping nine or 15 countries into one. So once again, we know that we are not able to be very accurate when we are comparing uh, so many different groups. But we do know that once again, there are many different reasons why the prevalence of type two is higher. There is a genetic component, there are environmental issues, there are dietary issues, and I have to add, there are um, issues with um, economic issues, even social determinants of health and economic issue is part of that uh, social determinants of health that reflect in the numbers that we are seeing. When it comes to hypertension and heart disease, I will summarize this slide by saying that in general, um, Hispanics were Ten were less likely to have heart disease. However, when it comes to hypertension, they have poorly managed high blood pressure. And, um, and when it comes to certain groups, it differs in certain groups. 
So I don't want to put all groups and say each group will have a different percentage of how they vary. So keep that in mind for uh, the next slides. So what about eating habits? And that's where I want you to pay attention into the different eating habits because I want to talk about um, a particular research study that I wanted to share with you, and that is called the Hispanic Community Health Study, Study of Latinos. And that is the most comprehensive study of Hispanic Latinos. And I am going to not use the word Latinos here because usually, even though it's used interchangeably, Latinos may also include uh, persons that do not speak Spanish. So I may use uh, Brazilians that even though they are Latinos because geographically they are in Latin America, they speak Portuguese. But in this particular study, which again is the largest study of Hispanics, they were really not, Latinos were not included. Uh, they were only Hispanics, meaning of Spanish language. And they have been studied since 2013. So it's been about 10 years. And the primary goal of this particular study is the prevalence of selected chronic diseases, especially cardiovascular disease and pulmonary condition, including heart disease, stroke, asthma, COPD, sleep disorders. And uh, what is interesting is that about 16,000, over 16,000 Hispanics were studied. And um, they were studied from four different centers. Uh, San Diego, California, Chicago, Illinois, Miami in Florida, and the Bronx in New York. And it was representative of Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Cubans, South and Central Americans. So as you can see, I have been telling you about how so many different studies usually the representation of many of the studies that you and I um, reference are mostly overrepresentative of Mexicans and underrepresentatives of other Hispanic subgroups. So in this particular study, there was a good representation of different Hispanic subgroups. This particular one, it's looking at different chronic conditions. Uh, the other part is that uh, who were the, it was co-founded by the National Heart Lung Blood Institute, the National um, Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. And uh, there were many 
organizations that originally founded this particular study. So the quality of the diet, they used the alternative healthy index. Uh, and this was one of the diet quality indicators previously linked to cardiometabolic risk. What they found was that all groups scored, scored poorly. So there wasn't any particular group that really excelled in the diet quality. Mexicans scored the highest and Puerto Ricans scored the lowest. What does that say to all of you is that it matters where you're from. And it also matters that in general, we need to start individualizing um, the counseling, but overall, we need to start focusing on the quality of the counseling that we offer because all of us can do better. I think that's the bottom line. We all need to do better when it comes to the quality of our diets. But some of us need to do even better. So in this particular study of dietary patterns, insulin resistance, and diabetes risk by Hispanic heritage, uh, let me summarize what happened here. They looked at the dietary pattern of all these different groups. Other than that, they divided it into five different, what they called groups, dietary pattern one, two, three, four, and five. What did, how did they name it? They named it, one was based on burger, fries, soft drinks, and pizza. The second one was white beans and red meats, and the red meats were pork and beef. The third was fish and whole grains. The fourth was cheese and sweets. And the five was stew and corn-based foods. And these were the results on the left. The diet, the pattern number one in the Dominican group was associated with insulin resistance. The dietary pattern number two in the Cuban group was associated with insulin resistance. Dietary pattern number two in the Central American group was associated with diabetes risk. But look at this, for Puerto Ricans that, were, that had pattern number one predicted diabetes risk. So how come in the Puerto Ricans, number one predicted diabetes risk independent of central adiposity? That meant that even, even if they didn't have um, fat accumulated around their waist, it, it was the number one predictor of diabetes risk. And that was because they not only consumed this dietary pattern, but in addition to that, 
they were also, they also had lower intake of fruits and vegetables, fish, whole grains, and had a higher intake of refined grains, processed meats, fried potatoes, sweetened beverages, and that was associated with higher diabetes risk. So to make define this a little bit better was the other groups, even though they had a consumption of what was considered to be poor quality foods, they also had good quality foods. But Puerto Ricans had what it's called the double one. Not only did they have an increase in lower nutrient foods, but they also had a higher increase of core nutrient foods. So sometimes when you have core nutrient foods, it kind of gets um, canceled if you have higher vegetable intake, high fruit intake. So you can even make it, you can cancel it off. It's, this is my own interpretation in my own words, if you have good consumption of fruits and vegetables. So another thing that I also wanted to add here is that when certain groups eat rice and beans, it is also better to eat more beans than rice, than more rice and beans. That was another conclusion of this study. Now in this one, um, what happens when individuals, when Hispanics live in the country, in the United States for a longer period of time. And that is what the objective of this study was all about. Does it matter? Does our, um, does it harm us to live better and become more Americanized in our eating pattern? And the bottom line, the conclusion of this study was it is mixed. For some individual, acculturation is worse, and for some individuals, it doesn't matter as much. So uh, I will conclude this slide by saying that the greater the effects of living in the United States on dietary patterns were mixed. The greater time in the United States was associated with higher adherence to dietary pattern number one. That's the burger fries and soft drinks. In Cubans, Dominicans, Mexicans, and Puerto Rican uh, groups. And that greater time in the United States was associated with lower adherence to dietary patterns um, Number two, in Cuban and Mexican groups. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a uh, an association just in one thing or another. So the advice is try that the positive association with certain foods that 
are positive. Let's say beans are very, uh, they have plant protein, they have magnesium, they also have other things that are nutritious like dietary fiber, consumption of mango. Those things can actually be protective to health. Uh, so those things should be the ones that we should advise our clients, our patients to increase or continue consuming those things. Now, this last study that I wanted to show you is what about the association of fruit and vegetable color with incident of diabetes and cardiometabolic health um, when it comes with diabetes. So in this particular study, there were 9,000 adults that were studied and given the low food and vegetable consumption in general, uh, we should all be consuming more fruits and vegetables, that there were different array of uh, fruits based by color. So the red, purple, and fruit vegetables were the least consumed and uncategorized fruit and vegetables were the most consumed. And again, Puerto Ricans have the lowest intake of fruit and vegetables and South Americans consume the highest fruit and vegetables. So the mean intake of green fruits and vegetables was highest among South Americans, Cubans, and other mixed heritage. And white fruits and vegetables among Dominicans, yellow orange among Mexicans, red purple was similar across all heritage groups. And uncategorized fruit and vegetables was highest among Cuban, Mexicans, and South Americans. Now, what I also wanted to share with you was that eating total fruits and vegetables, specifically uh, white fruits and vegetables was associated with a modest um, glycemic control and some cardiometabolic uh, markers. So now one thing is that when it comes to asking questions that many times some fruit frequency questionnaires, the question about certain fruits, especially fruits that are eaten by many Hispanics, such as mangoes, guavas, are included in fruit questionnaires. But the NHANES questionnaire that is written on the right-hand side, those questions are not asked. So it behooves us to include in the questionnaires fruits that are common among Hispanics so that these are not forgotten. Now, this particular slides, number of deaths due to individual dietary risks, um, diets high in sodium, diets low in whole grains, the importance of including fruits in our diets. Again, low intake of fruits and vegetables 
very important to include. Foods and flavors in Latin America, many fruits and many um, that are not, that are eaten, but usually not asked. And if not asked, most people are not going to include them. I just want to show you uh, what I had mentioned to you before, the different in our gastronomy in Mexico, some of the staples and some of the main foods that are different throughout Mexico, Central America. Uh, Mexico uses staples are corn, beans, and chili, and many different foods that the tortilla and masa are within the foods. Central America, the staples are rice, beans, and corn. The tortilla is used like bread as an accompaniment. Chilies are used not as much as in Mexico. The cuisine in South America, it will be extremely difficult to define the entire cuisine of the entire South America. Right now, I am in Medellin, Colombia, and there are six different regions in Colombia. I'm not from Medellin, I'm from the coast, and the cuisine is completely different. Uh, but the staples are corn, rice, and potato. The Colombia, we are children of the corn, but there is no tortilla and there is no spice. And the Caribbean um, grains are corn and rice. The um, most of the dishes are rice based and there is no more arepa um, and there is root vegetables are basically uh, king as one of the staples, as well as corn, rice, and many fish dishes, and as well as different kinds of vegetables that are embedded. Avocado is also used, and the food is well seasoned, but it is not spicy. Last but not least, I just wanted to share, and Diana will be talking a little bit more uh, about mango and some of the misconceptions of mango. But one of them that I uh, that I will talk about is that um, when it comes to diabetes, mangoes, the glycemic index of mangoes is between 51 and 52. And for half a cup of mango, the glycemic load um, is seven for half a cup. Um, even though mango is very sweet, you can really, when it comes to exchanging 100 calories, whether it's a cookie or not, in this particular study, um, there was no sign of change in body weight or blood pressure or insulin level uh, when, it, when it came to exchanging it for a cookie. So a cookie is delicious, a mango is delicious. You can have a cookie when you wanna have a cookie. Uh, but to think that that a, a mango may be something that a person cannot have, uh, quote unquote, um, because they have diabetes, 
that is something that we need to to talk to to people uh, about having a mango because is is too sweet. It's just something that um, should not worry anyone. We should be eating our fruits, and uh, a mango is very very delicious. So I will pass it on to. Um, Diana for the second part of this presentation. Thank you, Lorena. And thank you all so much once again for joining us. So let's talk about the star, the sort of the star of, of the fruits, at least for me. Uh, mango is absolutely one of my favorite fruits, if not the favorite fruit. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a flavor that really reminds me of home. I'm based in Miami. So here we have the blessing of having a very, very long mango season, depending on the kind of mango. And it's a very wonderful time of year where your neighbors, your family members, your friends, even if you don't have a mango tree, you're going to get a bag of mangoes. You're going to get so many mangoes that you're not going to know what to do with them. But uh, we get creative. So I still have a bag of mangoes in my freezer, <laughs> making ice cream, making smoothies. So we love mangoes and there's good reason for it, right? It's a delicious fruit. It is nutritious and it is very versatile. You can enjoy it in so many different ways. Um, it's available year round. Like I mentioned here in the tropics, we have a very, very long mango season, depending on when, um, what kind of variety of mango it is. Some of them have an earlier uh, fruiting season. Some of them have a later fruiting season. Um, but the good news is that we can get them year round from other places in the world too when it's not mango season here. So um, with that said, let's review some of the different kinds of ways that Latinos and Hispanics enjoy mango. Uh, and, you know, this is definitely not an exhaustive list. Uh, there's definitely many, many other ways to enjoy mango. But these are just some of the most maybe unique, um, depending on where you're visiting. In Cuba, I'm from Cuba, so I'm going to go ahead and call out the mango milkshake in Cuba. You can order a mango milkshake anywhere you go. It's very simple. It's just milk, mango. Um, I like to switch it up a little bit with like maybe some Greek yogurt, you know, dress it up a little. But in Cuba, you will likely see a batido de mango or a mango milkshake being enjoyed with lunch, with breakfast as a snack. Uh, here in Miami, we also enjoy it. <laughs> Mexico has so many different ways of enjoying mangoes. This is a wonderful and delicious like street food that you can get. It's mango with chile and chamoy. Chamoy is a very typical Mexican sauce made with dried fruit. Um, it's got that chile. And so you get like a little bit of sweet, you get a little bit of spice, and it's just a very delicious treat. El Salvador, which is in Central America, um, enjoys it a little bit differently than we do in Cuba, for example. In Cuba, it's not the most common to enjoy a green mango. Typically, I mean, we enjoy it, sure, but typically we might, we might see us enjoying mango more as a sweet fruit, as a ripe fruit, as dessert. Um, and in El Salvador, we have different ways of enjoying it. Mango with alguaste is a very unique way of enjoying it. And it uses ground pumpkin seeds, which is that sort of uh, 
powder that you see sprinkled on top of those green ma mangoes with a little bit of lime. So you can imagine it's less sweet, uh, more citrusy, uh, and definitely delicious, maybe even a little bit nutty with the pumpkin seeds. Then we go to uh, Lorena's territory, Colombia, and here we have a wonderful mango biche, which again, if you go to anywhere in Latin America, they will probably have mango biche that you can enjoy um, it, from the influence of Colombia. I know in Cuba, this might be a similar way that we enjoy a green mango, although not as regularly. So mango biche is unripe, mango with salt, sometimes a little bit of citrus and lime. <clears throat> and then we go to Venezuela. This is another version of a green drink, uh, or rather a, like a green mango recipe. And so this is called carato de mango, and it uses the green mango to make this sort of juice. So it's, it's going to have a little bit of that um, more tartness to it, as opposed to it being really uh, sweet up front. Uh, and it is a very unique way to enjoy it. I had never seen carato de mango be enjoyed. So while I was doing research, I learned about this wonderful drink. And now I'm going to my local Venezuelan spot to see if they can, you know, make one for me. Uh, then we jumped back to El Salvador, which uses uh, mango in very creative ways, as we can see. We also have mango verde encurtido, which is an unripe mango in vinegar. So it's like a pickled mango. And uh, you might have seen something similar maybe in Southeast Asia uh, used with a pickled mango. So it's very similar in flavors. You might get some seasonings in there, maybe a little bit of chile in there. And that's a lovely way to conserve that green mango, keep it from getting ripe and make it last for a very long time when you pickle it like this. It also makes for a great snack. So that's just a brief overview of all of the different ways that we in Latin America enjoy mangoes. Uh, I mean, we can we can really take it all the way. And here are a few other ways, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. We've got dried mango covered in sort of like a chile, maybe a little bit of sugar and chile. This makes a wonderful snack. We have a little bit of a mango salsa, so a take on a more traditional maybe pico de gallo. Uh, and so you add the mango in there with the tomatoes, onions, uh, cilantro, citrus, and you add a little extra layer. This might not be, you know, the most traditional thing you have seen, but with gastronomy and different ways of combining flavors and combining cultures, this is something that you can absolutely find in Central America or in South America at a restaurant, for example. Um, mango paletas, you can't go wrong. Hot summers or winters, really, depending on where you are, north or south of the equators. Um, I don't know if the seasons change like that, but anyway... <laughs> um, you might be enjoying what we consider winter in December, a mango paleta south of the equator. So um, because they're just so delicious year round and it's a perfect treat for the hot summers uh, and really, really delicious and nutrient rich, right? It's got tons of fiber, minerals, vitamins. Mango juice is another favorite. 
and also mango ceviche. This one might also be enjoyed. You know, when we think of ceviche, we think of Peru, but there are lots of other countries in Latin America that enjoy their own versions of ceviche, Mexico, Ecuador, um, and so on and so forth. I'm sure Colombia also has their own versions of ceviche. So, you know, we can mix and match and get really creative. And when it comes to communicating this with your Hispanic patient or your Hispanic client, um, it's important not to limit yourself to just the traditional forms of enjoying mango. We can get creative. We can infuse that mango in many different ways because it's already a fruit that they are enjoying. And if we can maybe include it in a way that uh, might be new, interesting, using the same sort of flavors that they like and that they are used to, it might be a lot easier to introduce this uh, as another fruit that they can enjoy regularly outside of just the traditional ways that they know. <clears throat> so let's talk about that mango myth that Lorena uh, briefly discussed. One of the things that we as diabetes educators hear the most from our clients and from our patients is that mangoes, there's a fear, there's a resistance around enjoying mangoes again if you've been diagnosed with diabetes. A lot of times the common misconception is that mangoes will uh, spike your blood sugar or that mangoes will increase your weight. Um, and as we've seen with the research already presented, we know that we could all benefit from more fruit and vegetable consumption, but especially more mango consumption. Um, in reality, the research doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't show that people with diabetes experience higher blood sugars when eating mango. Um, it, in fact, mango is considered a low GI fruit because it has so many, uh, so much fiber in it. Um, and Really, mango might even have therapeutic benefits. So um, in this study uh, by Burton et al., um, mango actually helped decrease the glucose concentration after meals. So, um, you know, whereas you might experience a higher um, blood sugar response with uh, other sorts of desserts um, versus a mango. So when it comes to mango, one of the things that is very helpful for your Latino or Hispanic patient with diabetes that wants to enjoy mango, but maybe has that fear around reintroducing it into their eating pattern because of the way that they've been sort of told that it might impact their blood sugar is to simply try right? Maybe we, we, we have a little bit of a challenge um, and enjoy a little bit of mango and see how that impacts their blood sugar. And we can add even more to that to mitigate that blood sugar response after the, they enjoy the mango. There's many ways to do this, right? That way they can still enjoy their mango because, uh, you know, everybody's very individualized. Blood sugar, glucose response is going to be very individualized. And we want to understand and um, meet them where they're at, right? So when it comes to personalizing care around blood sugar response, diabetes, and mangoes and Latinos, is that we want to really better understand what else is going on outside of just the mango, right? So that we can um, help piece together all of the different things that might be impacting blood sugar uh, and, and help undo a little bit of that fear around eating mangoes. Because 
as we've already seen, it can be a wonderful uh, addition to a balanced eating pattern. Uh, medications can affect blood sugar, the progression of diabetes, what stage of their diabetes are they at, the individual, some people may have more sensitivity to certain foods um, when it comes to glucose response. So taking it on a case-by-case -case individual basis is important and helping them work around that fear or that misconception around how mango may impact their blood sugar or their health. Um, one of the things we, we might want to do is maybe start by exploring how they typically enjoy mango, offering them, uh, like I mentioned, that challenge to try to see how it does impact their blood sugar, making sure they understand what normal blood sugar response looks like, right? Because a lot of folks might see their blood sugar maybe go up a little higher than what they feel is in range for them. And it ends up being a pretty average blood sugar response. So even just educating around that, better understanding what they're doing, how they're enjoying their mango and how we can break into that once more. Um, encouraging mango consumption is, is, is important because mango is a fruit that not only do we enjoy, so it'll be easy to incorporate into our usual routines. It'll be pleasurable, you know, joyful, um, but it's also a wonderful source of fiber, vitamin C, folate, copper, and so many other more vitamins and minerals. So listening to the individual and at the same time, gently posing that challenge, um, providing that education, uh, comparing some of the studies even uh, with them so that they can better understand what the, what the science actually says and how we can see how it works in their own body. Another great tool is to consider maybe having mango, depending on how they enjoy it, right? If they want a sweet mango, maybe they have it as a dessert after a meal with fiber, protein. Um, maybe if they want to have it as a snack, uh, that might be well, well, we'll get into all the different ways that we can make meals with mangoes. Actually, I'm getting excited, so I won't get ahead of myself. Um, but that's just kind of a little bit of a, of a tease for you. <laughs> um, now, when it comes to food as medicine, we've heard of this food as medicine concept. You might have also heard of it uh, referred to as food as medicine. Um, it's a public health philosophy. A lot of policies are being created to, to support food as medicine. And it's typically presented as programming as well, um, involving maybe produce prescriptions or medically tailored meals, groceries, food-focused interventions. So as you can see, this is a wonderful opportunity to work in mango into those medically tailored meals, into those produce prescription programs when you're working with a population of Hispanics and Latinos. Because as I previously mentioned, it's going to be an easy thing to adapt to because we're already consuming it so regularly and in so many different ways in Latin America. So, you know, mango in and of itself can be medicine, if you will, uh, because regular mango consumption may support things like glucose management. It may support good digestion, um, a strong immune system, lower blood pressure, reduced inflammation even. So it's a great opportunity to not only highlight something that we as Latinos and Hispanics love to it to consume 
in all of the ways, but also something that's going to be beneficial to our health, beneficial to our, uh, you know, our overall well-being. Because eating food that we enjoy is also just as important as eating nutritious foods, right? So mango is kind of like where they overlap. So going into the making meals with mangoes section, we mentioned how many different ways Latinos might enjoy mango. This is a mix, right? A mix of traditional ways to enjoy mango and also a mix of maybe new gastronomical ways to incorporate it into a dish that might be traditional or might be more readily accepted and enjoyed um, with an ingredient that might be different, but also regularly accepted and enjoyed. So some ideas for breakfast that might work for your Latino or Hispanic client, uh, yogurt with fresh mango. Yogurt with fresh mango is a wonderful breakfast option. Uh, maybe some scrambled eggs, uh, Perico, I think they're called in, in Colombia. And so you, you mix all these veggies in there. That's a wonderful way to enjoy your scrambled eggs in the morning with a little side of mango uh, as uh, your fruit. So that's a nice and balanced meal. It's got your protein. It's got your fiber. It's got your carbohydrates, your fat. You've got everything you need there. Um, taking us to Venezuela for a second, we have a ham and cheese arepa with a side of mango juice. Uh, and that mango juice with the pulp, you're getting so many benefits from that as well. For lunch, we might see, you know, this might be something my, my Cuban father eats, right? A sandwich with a mango smoothie. Uh, that is a pretty standard, easy lunch for a lot of Latinos who, you know, might have a light lunch as their, as their sort of uh, routine. Other Latinos and Hispanics might have a heavier lunch. They might have sort of what we might see here in the United States as dinner as their lunch. So here we have an example of maybe a Costa Rican or Nicaraguan plate with gallo pinto, eggs, cheese, plantain, and mango salsa. So instead of having that tomato salsa, we've added a little bit of mango in there because while it may not be the most, you know, authentically Nicaraguan way to enjoy this dish, it's such a minor tweak using the same ingredients in different ways that likely it'll be delicious and very well accepted. Uh, we talked about ceviche, all of the different kinds, a little bit of a mango ceviche. In Panama, they might enjoy it with different fruits and vegetables that we might not see in places like Peru. Um, so, you know, you might have mango in there. And finally, dinner, we can have some whole fish, rice. This looks very Caribbean. You might find this in Puerto Rico and um, anywhere in the Caribbean coast, really, of Latin America um, that has a little bit of patacones or tostones is what we call those fried plantains. And then a little bit of diced mango in that side salad with cucumber, tomato. So as you can see, there are so many different ways to sprinkle mango in or make it a like the feature, right? Um, we have some chicken and rice, a arroz con pollo is a sort of like pan Latin American dish, right? Every country has their own version, a wonderful side of mango as dessert, uh, tacos with a little bit of mango salsa on top, that could be an option too. And then we've got snacks. We've got mango with chile, that's a wonderful snack. 
We've got the alguaste again, which is nice and balanced because you've got the green mango that gives you that energy, that fiber, and then the pumpkin seeds add a little sprinkle of protein, more fiber, some heart healthy fats. Um, and finally, the dried mango with chile. This is great if you're going on a hike, if you're going on a run or doing some activity and you need that long lasting energy. Wonderful snack. You can have it by itself. You can pair it with something like nuts. Um, it's really kind of choose your own adventure. Uh, so as you can see, there are so many different ways to enjoy mango. And with that, I will sort of conclude today's presentation, leaving you with the desire to go and enjoy a juicy mango after this. Um, and some of the key takeaways for today's conversation are that uh, first, Latin American cuisine is very rich in diversity. So um, it's gonna vary regionally. It's gonna look very differently even within the same country from region to region. But mango is one ingredient that it's consistent. You can't go wrong. Everybody in Latin America loves a mango. I mean, you know, that's a with an asterisk, of course. I'm sure there are people in Latin America who are like, no, I'm, I'm okay, but that's definitely not me. Um, research suggests that regular mango consumption may support overall health and improve metabolic markers, as we have seen. Uh, another takeaway is that while mangoes are popular among Hispanics and Latinos, they might be avoiding mango because of those misconceptions around blood sugar, weight management, and all of those different um ideas that they might have picked up along their, their health journey. Finally, traditional and new culinary approaches can and should be encouraged when it comes to um, mango consumption amongst Hispanics and Latinos because they already are enjoying the fruit in many different ways and encouragement from a professional that is knowledgeable and that they trust is only going to uh, engage them more and engage them to eat more fruits, vegetables, and mangoes. So with that, any questions? Uh, Diana, I just answered a question that was posted in the Q&A section, um, which was about mangoes glycemic index, uh, the glycemic um, load or glycemic response of mango and mango juice. Uh, I also wanted to, uh, which is, I don't know about the mango juice per se. Usually mm -hmm. when fruit is eaten because of the fiber, um, there is a slower response, the glycemic response versus the juice. Uh, in, in terms of how mango juice is prepared, in Latin America overall, um, I do want to say that most of the time, mango juice is prepared with water. So the mango, the mango is usually ripe um, when the mango juice is prepared and mixed with water and sugar is added to the mango juice. Uh, many times is thick and um and then when when it is prepared for persons who have diabetes a non-nutritive sweetener is usually added to it and it could be either thick 
or on the thinner side, depending on how someone enjoys it. Uh, now, I usually, I usually say that each person uh, may have a different glycemic response based on their sugar, their glucose levels prior to it. And then later on that they should see based on what else they have had with the mango juice to see how they uh, respond and they can adjust accordingly. And also based on the amount of juice that, that they have. Um, then depending on, on their preference, as Diana was sharing, that there are some places that they have the green mango juice. Some places like in Venezuela and some places like in Colombia, we also have green mango and we uh, drink green mango juice as well. Um, and that would be my best advice. I don't know if Diana has something else to, to add. I do. I want to first preface by saying that the glycemic index is a good tool, but it's important to understand that the glycemic index is a tool to only assess glycemic response of an item individually. So that means when we're eating a meal, like the arepa with ham and cheese and the mango juice, the glycemic index for the mango almost or the mango juice almost becomes irrelevant because we have other components in there. We've got fiber, we've got protein, we've got fat that will impact blood sugar differently now that we're consuming it with the uh, mango juice. So that's one thing to consider when thinking about that glycemic index. It's, it's a good tool for individual consumption comparison, like if we were comparing a mango to a banana, for example. But um, in this case, that's not necessarily what we would see when enjoyed in a complete meal. So that's another thing to consider. Uh, another, I also want to say that um, if, if we run out of time, uh, but I am here for, for questions, but if we do run out of time, that uh, I would be more than happy to answer your question uh, at a later time. Um, so please feel free to, to email me. Um, and I've put up our emails here, our contact information, so you can reach out to any of us if yes. you do have any follow-up questions. Well, yeah, let me go ahead and just finish up our housekeeping. There is a question about choosing mangroves that are not very fibrous. Um, so think about that. Let me finish up to say that uh, yes, when we close that question, okay. <laughs> when we close the webinar, um, there'll be a short survey and we appreciate your feedback on this session. As always, ideas for future webinars appreciated also. And then watch for an email that'll come from Zoom on by Friday with the recording, the handout and your CEU certificate. Um, and as I said, this is our final webinar of 2023, but I can give you a, a 
kind of a sneak peek to the Spring Journal Club. Um, the FNAEE division has been working with Kristen Filippo, our uh, Journal Club moderator, and it's going to be a series of uh, nutrition education programs and implications from the field. And so watch for announcements of that webinar series um, starting in February. So, um, so now I want to know too. So what is the answer to mangoes that are not very fibrous? Is there a trick? <laughs> um, I just directed people oh. can please visit mango.org. Um, uh, it's an excellent website and they have information about the different, different varieties types. of mango, uh, the different types of mango uh, and they will have the information that that are um, the the person that had uh, asked the question is looking for, and they also have nutrition information, how to cut a mango. That's also another question that many people ask. So I just directed them to um, mango.org. Okay. Well, thank I will you. have one okay. thing. <laughs> I will add that if you are concerned that your mango does not have enough fiber, um, which most mango has plenty of fiber, even if you're not like feeling them in your teeth, um, is to challenge yourself to find a way to add fiber to your mango. This one, the question was, which mango was less fibrous? I guess ah. the person is concerned with all the fibers. There are different types of mangoes. Um, I, I, I didn't see the question. So, so this one, what, right, 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 right. I was just looking looking at the Q&A and I just wanted to make sure that that I answered, that all questions were answered. And this one was, and I know because I have visited the Mango Board myself, um, and and I know that there is uh, a section for for nutritionists and it wanted um they they wanted to know about the different varieties of mangoes and I know that there's one section there. Um, so I was just directing it there. And there are there are recipes. There's also um how to cut a mango. Um so I figured that that would be a great place to send to send her and everyone else um that is that is looking for information and also about the great benefits of, of eating eating mangoes and everyone should be eating mangoes. And this is coming from someone who adores mangoes, so. <laughs> well, thank you both for presenting today and thank you for everyone joining us. We look forward to seeing you back on an SNEB webinar in 2024. Awesome, thank, thank you. you. And, uh, happy holidays to everyone. Happy holidays. Have a wonderful rest of the year.